Many of you have heard me talk about the last capital campaign we were involved in. It was back in 2011. And we had 44 families that contributed to that, and we raised $183,000 by the time the three years was up. So it was a very successful campaign. And now, are you ready for this? Now, those of you who are here for the first time today, you don't know what's going on. Last week was Commitment Sunday, and we were asking the people in our church to make a commitment over the next three years of what they could do to help us expand actually more than double the size of our building. And so last week was the starting line, the first week of, the, of this campaign, and 104 families are involved already, and $820,000 has been pledged over the next three years. So you, you can clap about that. That's... <laughs> That's a lot of money. I can just put that in my back pocket and travel around the world for the next 20 years. No, there'll be none of that. And then here's something else. There are 23 families who had never given to the church before that are a part of that and gave over $100,000. And then there were 10 teenagers that participated with the, their parents and were giving money of their own, whether it was money from babysitting or they had part-time jobs. So I just want to thank you all for the part that you played in this. And I know there are still a few dozen others that wanted to give and haven't yet had the opportunity to make that commitment. And we're pretty well halfway to our goal, and we have three years to grow that yet. And people with experience in capital campaigns tell us that about 40% of the entire money you need will actually come in from people that don't even pledge at the start. So we're in a very good spot right now. So if you haven't had an opportunity to be a part of this, there are commitment cards on the back, that pouch on the back of the chair in front of you. So if you want to take one of those, you can fill it out and then you can put it in the offering box, which is by our sound cart at the back. My grandson, Seth, put all those in there and he, he's wearing sunglasses today because we were at their house last night for his dad's birthday party. And then Seth and I got into a little Nerf gun war and I kind of hit him in the eye <laughs> with one of the little Nerf gun pellets, not pellets, but bullet. Uh, and, uh, but he's okay. He, he can see he's just playing it up a little bit with the sunglasses on inside. But he was able to see well enough to get those cards out there. And today is also First Offering Sunday. And a lot of people have already begun to give. And you can give through cash or check and put that in an envelope and use the offering box at the back. Or many have chosen to give biweekly or monthly throughout the three years of the campaign. And the best way to do that is to actually have automatic withdrawals. So contacting our office and Karen Cook, our administrative assistant and bookkeeper, will set that up for you. And then another way to give is just through e-transfer to giving at halifaxchristianchurch.ca. And our administrator is on vacation this weekend, but she's still on the job because she said people have been trying to use that 
and there's something wrong with Scotiabank. So just wait until she gets back tomorrow and she'll have that all straightened out. And then there's text giving and tithely as well, different ways to use. But I just thank you once again for your participation in all of this. Back at Peter Boyer's uh, memorial service, which now is just back a little over a month ago, I talked about the fact that when I was hired here, I went through an interview process with the elders of this church and also the executive of a church planning organization that was providing the funds for my salary. And Peter asked me question after question. And these weren't easy questions. These were the toughest questions you could have. And his wife, Debbie, was at the first service, and she said, let people know, Peter just did this for fun. I thought it was just to disrupt me or something. But one question was, the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to God, but surely that's not the only way, is it, Greg? There must be some other way. And I, I never gave in. I stuck to what Scripture said. And, and that's what we do say, and that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And what right do we have to say that? Isn't that arrogant or intolerant or exclusive? I'm so glad that... I'm not forced to rely on my own opinions. Instead, I can go to God's word and see what God's word has to tell us about how we get back to him. And God's word makes it very clear that there is only one way to him, and that is through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I thought we've been talking about giving and finances and generosity the last four weeks. So I'd go with a lighter topic today. And I chose there's only one way to God. And so you'll see that this isn't that light <laughs> as we go through it. But in John 14, 6, Jesus gives what is probably the most politically incorrect statement that he ever made when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. So when he says, I am the way, the word that's used for way in the Greek is actually the word road. And some other translations have him saying, I am the road to get back to God. It's biblically correct to say that, but at the same time, it's politically incorrect. So what we're going to do here this morning is we're going to look at a few road signs that people in the world would like to use because they think it's more accurate in describing our relationship with Jesus Christ and describing that road that leads to God. And the first sign is a merge sign. And, and this is where you have two separate lines or lanes that are coming together into one and then they end up in the same place. Well, that's St. Peter Boyer and James, our other pastor and I, we went to Toronto in 2012 to an Art of the Start conference. It was all about church planning. And the conference was just until 5 o'clock. And then we had the evening free, and we thought, let's go in and watch the Toronto Blue Jays play. So we did. But it took us two hours to get home because there were four lanes on the Gardner Expressway that all merged into one because of construction. And it was just chaos. So here we have people saying, 
that this is what is going on with us in the world. It doesn't matter what you believe because all religions have an equal claim on the truth and they all come together in that same place, God. So many people believe this and the root for this is called pluralism. And pluralism is the politically correct idea that all religions are basically true and all paths lead to God. You just pick one and then you sincerely follow that one. The test isn't necessarily truth, but sincerity. But pluralism, it's almost like a spiritual buffet. You take your tray and you walk along the table and you'll say, oh, I'll have a little bit of Islam. I'll have a couple of scoops of the New Age movement, and then you just keep going down there, and maybe uh, uh, some a side dish of Buddhism, a slice of Hinduism, and then I'll have a bowl uh, of uh, Scientology, and we just keep adding, and, and then maybe a little bit of Christianity as well. According to a survey, 64% of people believe that when Christians Buddhists and Muslims pray, they're all praying to the same God. Now, if this is true, and all faiths do actually merge together, that we're all talking about the same God, then God actually must be quite confused, even schizophrenic, because God told Mohammed that everyone needs to take a pilgrimage to Mecca, and, and that is what Muslims believe. But then he tells Christians, you can worship anywhere you want. And we say, okay, come on, God, which one is it? And then we look at the issue of men and women. Some religions teach that it's okay for men to dominate and abuse women, while Christianity teaches that we're supposed to put the other person ahead of ourselves, put another person's needs before our own. And then there's the issue of salvation or the afterlife. Some religions teach that after you die, you just cease to exist. Others teach that there is incarnation. Uh, others, uh, a reincarnation, sorry. Others will teach that nirvana happens after that. And then others teach heaven. So how can we say that we're going to the same place when they don't even want to go to the same place? And then here's another road sign that many people think leads to God. Men working, and we see this all over the city, especially in the summer when we're trying to get places. Many people and religions teach that the way you get to God is by a road that you work your way along. You do enough good things and avoid the bad things, and eventually you make it to God. So Christianity is different from all other major religions in the world. And one guy explained it this way. He said, we use the words do and done to separate Christianity from every other world religion. Every other world religion says you have to do something, but Christianity says Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. So other faiths teach that you have to pray five times a day or, or you have to give alms or use a prayer wheel or, or avoid certain foods one of innumerable possibilities. And after you've done enough, then you make your way back to God. We believe as Christians that we're saved not through what we do, but by what Jesus has done for us. 
So you can really see the distinction between do and done when you look at the different stories told by various faith systems. In Buddhist literature, there's actually a story that is very similar to one that we see in the book of Luke. And both of them begin with a son who asks for his inheritance from his father. He takes it, he goes off to a far-off country, and he wastes all of that money. And then he finally realizes that he'd be better off going back to be with his father. And the story you're familiar with is from the Bible, and the young man says, I will go to my father, and I will say to him, I have sinned against God, and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just make me one of your hired hands. And then he just kept repeating that over and over again as he was traveling along the road to his father's home. And he was a long distance away from his father's house, but his father was out there every day looking for his son. And the father spotted him, and the father ran to him. And as the father approached the son, the son said, Father, I have sinned against God in heaven, and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired men. But the father cut him off, and he hugged him, and he kissed him, and then he called out to his servants, and he said, hurry, get the best clothes, bring out the best sandals, put a ring on his finger. This son of mine was dead, and he has now come back to life. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. But that story in Buddhist literature ends quite differently. The son goes home, and through a series of events, he spends years of servanthood to his father by shoveling manure. That's what it actually is, shoveling manure on the farm. I, I did this the other way around. I did it before I, I left home. And then eventually, he was reinstated as his son. So there's a big difference, the father accepting and forgiving the son or the father having to work, excuse me, the son having to work his way back into his father's favor. Uh, Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us because of his mercy and not because of any good things that we have done. God washed us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gave us new birth and a fresh beginning. So we don't get to heaven by trying really hard. We get to heaven by trusting in Jesus and what he has done by having faith in him. And then there's a road sign that describes probably two-thirds of the world's population, and it's this one, wrong way. I had a problem with this in my driving test. I was so confident. I'd been driving trucks in the fields from the time I was 12 years of age, and I never drove in the city. So I'm on it comes to a one-way street. Wrong way sign, and Greg still turns down the wrong way. But this is a sign that is very popular in our world, but it's not popular for me to say th that. It's not popular for me to tell someone that they're going the wrong way because that's not acceptable in our society. It, it's difficult to step up, to speak out, and stand for the truth. My three daughters are all naturally athletic, they get it from me, but also their mom, who was a very good athlete as well. But in grade seven, 
Uh, my middle daughter, Shannon, had started junior high at Park West School, and she made the A volleyball teams and soccer teams because she played those sports before that. But then the woman that was coaching the basketball team saw her natural abilities and, and thought, no, I want her on my team. I, I can teach her to play this game. So she, Shannon, went on the team and then didn't go very well. In one game, it was they were starting the second half, so the tip-off took place. The ball went to Shannon, and she immediately starts running toward her own basket. And I'm yelling, Shannon, you're going the wrong way. But she wasn't listening to me because I taught my daughters, don't listen to the crowd. Don't listen to anybody out there. You concentrate on what you're doing. So then I just grimaced and kind of tried to hide but fortunately, she was a terrible shot, and she missed the basket. But people don't want to be told they're going the wrong way because they, they don't think they're going the wrong way. So when you tell them they are, they get defensive, and they feel like you're attacking them. So in our country, people are free to believe what they want, but many have taken that to mean that all beliefs are equally valid that all religions are equally true. And logically speaking, the one of these religions would have to be right and all the rest would have to be wrong or all religions would have to be wrong because they each have mutually exclusive claims. There's no way that they can all be right because they contradict each other. So for me to say that my way is right and someone else's way is wrong, would get me labeled as intolerant. And that's a word that you hear a lot these days. But there are two meanings to that word. There is traditional intolerance, which says that I can accept you and I can value you without agreeing with your beliefs or behavior. And Jesus modeled this type of tolerance. He ate with the tax collectors. He touched the lepers. He healed the daughter of a Gentile woman. And the Gentiles were another religious race. And he came to the aid of a woman that was caught committing adultery. But he never sacrificed truth for tolerance. And he told that woman, go and leave that life of sin. So he balanced this uncompromising truth with unconditional love. And that's the type of tolerance we need. We accept people for who they are, and we love them, but we don't have to accept the way they live their lives. And there's a new tolerance that's used most of the time today, and every individual's beliefs, values, and lifestyles are equally valid, and all truth is relative. And to be truly tolerant in our society today, I have to be able to say that your truth is just as true for you as my truth is for me. So under this new tolerance, some words get redefined. One of those is disagreement, which now gets labeled as hate. So when I tell someone that I am on the right road and the road they're on is wrong, it's going to bring about some pretty strong emotions. But because the gospel message is going to be a bit offensive to some people, that doesn't mean that we have to be offensive people. Uh, we need to balance the truth with love. Th that's why Peter said this, 
but respect Christ as the Holy Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to answer everyone who asks you to explain about the hope you have. So when I disagree with someone, I say the road you're going on is the wrong way. And, and, and I say that with love, and I say that with respect, because if we don't speak the truth with love, then we lose our chance to be heard. If I'm traveling with a friend to a golf course that he has never been to, he's driving, and he takes a wrong road, well, I'm not going to let him continue on down that road. I'm going to say, wait, this is the wrong way. And then there's another word that's been redefined, and that's the word conviction. And conviction is now labeled as fanaticism. And so under this new tolerance, there's supposedly no absolute truth. There's no right way. Then there's no truth worth defending. So if I am convicted and I defend my truth, then I get labeled as a religious fanatic. And the third word that's been redefined is the word gospel. So when I tell someone I'm going the right way, and if you don't get going in that direction, you're not going to make it, then that exposes me as a religious racist guilty of spiritual discrimination. And that the world tells us that the politically correct thing to do is just watch everybody going the wrong way and say, if you want to go the wrong way and end up at a spiritual dead end, then the most loving thing that I can do is just let you go there. But that's not showing love to someone because love can't ignore the truth. So it's difficult in the time that we live in to tell people they're going the wrong way. But if it's true that Jesus is the one way to God, and then we have to speak up. It's the only loving thing to do. But here's the road sign that Jesus would say is the best one to describe the road to God. And that would be this. It's one way. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. And here's the way that Peter puts it in Acts chapter 4. He said, only Jesus has the power to save. His name is the only one in all the world that can save anyone. Now, if that's true, then I'd have to say it's not narrow-minded. It's based on truth. It's based on evidence. It's narrow, never narrow-minded or intolerant to make a decision based on the truth. Lee Strobel, in his book, God's Outrageous Claims, tells a story about a couple who had a newborn daughter, and they had brought her home from the hospital, and she developed jaundice. So they took her back to the hospital, and the doctor very quickly diagnosed what was going on with her. And the doctor explained that this was potentially a devastating disorder. But there was a simple cure. All they had to do was put their little daughter under a light, and her skin would absorb that light, and it would stimulate the liver to function properly, thus making everything okay. But then Strobel went on to say, just imagine these uh, parents saying to the doctor, 
Well, that just seems too easy. Just putting our daughter under a light, that's too simple. What if we scrubbed her? What if we scrubbed her really, really hard, then dipped her in bleach and scrubbed her some more? Wouldn't her skin color return to its normal color? And the doctor would say, you don't understand. There's only one way to cure jaundice, and she has to be exposed to the light. And then maybe the couple would say, well, we don't like this one-way thing. Uh, give us some other options. What if we just pretend that everything is okay? A and then uh, wouldn't her skin just eventually become normal? But the doctor would say, look at my credentials. Maybe he would even point to his uh, degrees that he has hanging on the wall. I've been doing this for 20 years. I have helped hundreds of babies that have had jaundice. You can trust me based on all my credentials. But would it be intolerant or narrow-minded for that couple to say, we're going to choose the one way to cure our daughter of jaundice? It's not narrow-minded to act on the truth. And the truth is that we all have a terminal disease called sin, and there's only one cure for that, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can trust him because he is the only one who has the right credentials. He's the only one that fulfilled all the prophecies. Uh, we had a young couple in the church well, probably 15, 20 years ago. She was a Christian. He had grown up in a Jewish family. And we started a Bible study together. And we got, when we got to this point of looking at the prophecies that had been made about Jesus 800 and more years prior to his arrival on the earth, that was what convinced him that Jesus really was the Messiah and he accepted him. So Jesus worked powerful miracles. He lived a perfect life. He died as an atoning death for our sins, and he rose back from the dead again. So we can trust that what he says is true. But some of us could say, what if we scrubbed really hard? What if we tried to earn our way back to God? You could try, but no matter how hard you try, it just won't work for you. And some of us might say, well, what if we tried some other way? You could try some other way, but it won't get you where you want to go. And then some could say, what if we sincerely believe that we don't have a problem with sin and that everything's okay? You can sincerely believe that you don't have a problem, but you do. You'll be sincerely wrong. There's only one cure for our sin problem, and that's Jesus Christ. In John 8, 24, Jesus said, that is why I said you will die with your sins unforgiven. If you don't have faith in me for who I am, you will die and your sins will not be forgiven. So if that's true, then it's not narrow-minded to say, that's the road I want to take. It's not arrogant. It's not glorifying ourselves. It's not based on what we do ourselves. It's glorifying God. And then in Romans, Paul wrote, everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. So that means that not one of us is good enough. There's no room for pride or arrogance or prejudice. And all need to be made right with God by his grace, which is a free gift. 
they need to be made free from sin through Jesus Christ. So that explains why Jesus has to be the way, because our sin separated us from God, and we've fallen so far short of the glorious standard of perfection that he set for us. But Jesus made us right by paying the price for our sin. He took the penalty, and he died that death. He took our place on the cross. If there was some other way, if there was a plan B, then God would have been foolish for sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. And we would need to check Jesus' IQ for going through with all of this, all that needless pain and suffering. If there was some other way, then it would have gone down that way. But there isn't another way. So when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew that in a few hours he was going to be killed so that you and I would have a way back to God. And in Matthew 26, and this is in the message paraphrase, going a little ahead, he fell on his face praying, my father, if there is any way, get me out of this, but please, not what I want, you, what do you want? And there was no other way, and Jesus was nailed to that cross. The last thing I want to say is that it's not exclusive to say that Jesus is the only way because that offer is given to everyone. It's not just to one certain group. Anyone can become a part of this family by accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior. So it doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter what happened in your background. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is that you can come to him through faith. Peter wrote, Christ died once for our sins. An innocent person died for those who were guilty. Christ did this to bring you to God. And when his body was put to death and his spirit was made alive. So as we close... I'm sure that some of you are asking this question. Isn't it unfair to say that there's only one way to God? Why did God give us only one way? And I understand the question, but I actually think it's the wrong one. Instead of saying, why is there only one way? Maybe we should be asking, why is there any way at all? Maybe it's time to Quit complaining about there only being one way and just be grateful that there is a way. For us to have a way at all, Jesus gave his life. So let's be glad that God gave the invitation. Maybe the road you're traveling on isn't the Jesus road right now. And this is a great place for you to actually make a U-turn and say, I'm going to turn my life over to him. And then you can start traveling down the road that he is leading us on.